Newcastle know what's coming, but they can't deal with it. It's a tremendous goal from Danny Higginbottom. The header and it's a goal and they've scored. It's Danny Higginbottom. Hello and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast. Today, we've got a guest who've played for massive clubs such as Manchester United, Stoke City, Sheffield United, and perhaps the biggest of them all, Sunland AFC. But he now frequents Sky Sports as a pundit. Welcome to the show, Danny Higginbotham. How are you doing? You well? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. We're going to try and cover, I suppose, as much of your career as we can in the next hour or so. It's interesting because when you get to the end of your career, you like a lot of people will look back on the career, and I think I did it for about for about twenty minutes. Yeah, that was it. I had a, had a few drinks with my, with my parents and my wife and, and what have you, and just had a look back then. And but then after that, the only time really then it gets brought back up is then when you, when you're talking to people. And, and the good thing is about that is that when you start talking, you know, all memories that you had that you'd forgotten about completely are then brought up again. But I've always been. People have called me a little bit crazy for it, but I've always like looked at it and been, you know, it's nice every now and then to talk about what's gone on in the past in terms of my football and things like that. But I'm always very much of looking forward into the here and now and what's happening. But every now and then, like you say, you know, it's it's nice to, to have a little bit of a look back. You can look back at it and not miss it too much. It's it's kind of in that box now. You're happy with what's there and you're quite happy to move forward and like the next chapter of life. Completely, 100%. I think that, you know, it's it's well documented. There are there are, are a lot of um, you know former players that that suffer when they finish playing. You know the the, the mental side of things, the mental health side of things, and, and thankfully now it's it's now being brought uh, being brought to the fore because I think it was something that previously wasn't mentioned because of you know whatever reason. Yeah. You know you, you you weren't seen as it was seen as not being machoism and all that. But I'm just glad that that's all been put to the side because. One of the things is, is that as a as a footballer, I think there's a few things you're regimented, um, you are idolised, and you know you you get so much respect from that. And then all of a sudden, it's it's not a gradual process. It can just change from one day to the next. And I think that you know t- towards the end of my career, some of the younger players were asking me questions. You know how mm-hmm. how do I go about things when I'm getting a little bit older and I get phone calls. And I get phone calls now as well about it, you know, from from some younger players saying, you know, what do you advise? And the one thing I'll always say is forget about the level that you're playing at. Continue to play until you know, if it's possible, continue to play until you know what you're going to do next. Because you are a long time retired. I was very much of the feeling that I left football when it was when it was on the cusp of leaving me. And I didn't want that to happen. So I was able to leave under under my own terms. And I think it's a big thing because when I left, I knew what I was going into next. I knew what I was enjoying next. But the biggest problem is when when a player finishes. So if if he retires, if he can't get a club, if he's after stop through injury, as footballers, you're not long-term planners. And I don't think a lot of people are long-term planners. You know, you're playing football. It's it, it's it's a dream. You don't call it a job. You're just so fortunate to do it, and you get paid for it. Um, and you just don't see an end date to it. Yeah. And then when it comes along, you're not prepared, you're not ready. Um, because one of the things is, as a footballer, I, I remember when I was younger, my dad, you know, it's it's not the way I do my parenting, but my dad, like, if I had a if I had a game, say, a Friday, then a Saturday, then a Sunday, and I was really tired on a Monday, sometimes mum and dad would give me the day off. 
My yeah. dad in particular, because he was so driven that he wanted me to be a footballer. That's mm-hmm. what he wanted to be me to be. And his thing was always to me was, you know, look around, look at where you're living now, look at the house you're living in. Do you want better than that? Do you want better than that for your family? So not that I needed that as a drive because I loved, I, I love where I live. I love the game and everything like that. But for my, for my dad, he actually looked at, you know, and, and like I say, I disagree with it now because it's not the way I am with my children, but my dad looked at it. I think like education was second, yeah, and and it was a big gamble from his perspective, and you know, one that obviously I adhere to because you know you're young and, and what have you, and it worked out. But if it hadn't worked out, then then you're in a little bit you're in a little bit of trouble then because you don't know what the next step is. And you come from like a footballing family because I know obviously you're you're born in Manchester. And I believe you come from a a red family, but I think did, did your brother play for Altrincham or am I making that? Yeah, my, my my brother was he he was a good good non league player. He played at Altrincham, played at Staley Bridge, played at Witton. He he did the in the non-league like in, in the northwest, and you know when I was a kid he was my hero you yeah. know every, every Saturday I'd have my game at whatever, whatever age I was and then you know my dad would get me straight in the back of his back of his van so we had like a it was like a two-seat two-seater car like a mini transit van and then I'd be in the back with all the tools pushed up against me <laughs> and we'd be racing to wherever it was to watch my brother and then you know like I say he was a centre forward and um he got the looks out of the two of us, so he was idolised <laughs> by um, by some of the female contingent as well that used to come and watch the games. I know and, that. Um, and after a game, you know, for me, after a game, I'd go and stand outside the dressing room, and I was so proud like, to have my brother play yeah. at, at that level. And I'd stand outside the dressing room, wait for him to come out, and I'd carry his back. I'd carry his back and, and just walk behind him. I was just like so proud to have him as my brother, you know, in, in the non-league days and what have you. And, um, and I remember one game we played, he played, he goes a long time ago. He might have been in Fleetwood, obviously back in the back in the days when back Fleetwood day. was a non-league, and yeah. um, he's gone down in the penalty box. No penalty's been given or anything, but he's just not moved as though like he's really hurt. Yeah. And this woman tr- jumped over the advertising hoarding and tried to give him mouth to mouth on the pitch. One of the supporters, he was brilliant. <laughs> but you, think, <laughs> you, you just see so many different things, and like I enjoy going and watching non-league football because you just yeah. see so many different characters and. What you see at non-league games is the supporters that are there, they love that club through thick and thin because you can guarantee 10 miles away, 15 miles away, the most there's going to be a league club there, but they choose to go to the non-league and there's just something so pure about it. You come from a red family though, right? You were obviously Manchester United, so I suppose your dream club to play for would have been Manchester United. Um, Oh yeah, 100%. When I was, um, how old was I now? When I was about nine, I was actually at Manchester City at their um, School of Excellence. Do you want me to and, edit that um, bit? <laughs> so we, so we, we, we used to train, obviously, Stones Throw from, from Main Road. So yeah. my dad had dropped me off, go and, have a, go and have a drink and then come watch the last 20, 25 minutes of the session, what have you. And um, one day I was playing for the interleague team. So basically what you had, we was in, trying to think then, probably in the, it might have been in the Templar League then before I moved to the Salford League. And so the interleague team was like, obviously all the teams in the league and then they pick the best players and they play against another league. Yeah. And we played at Littleton Road, which was obviously, you know, part of United's training ground at the time, along with the cliff. And after the game, Brian Kidd, who obviously played played for United, played for City, is now at Manchester City. He pulled my dad into into his office at Littleton Road. And he just said, uh, you know, how's things going? I was like, yeah, everything's fine. He said, um, he goes to my dad, he goes, what, what colour's your house? My dad, when it's red, it's always been red, you know. Yeah. There's no no Manchester City supporters in our family or anything like that. And he just said in no uncertain terms, you know, what the FNL are you doing with them lot then? <laughs> and then I 
obviously joined joined United from there. And I was so fortunate because I had Brian Kidd, Nobby Styles, Tony Whelan, Paul McGuinness, Jim Ryan, Eric Harrison. God, God bless his soul. He was unbelievable to so many of us younger players. Those were the coaches that I had from like the age of 11 to 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 18, 19, which was which was amazing. You know, you had you had former players that played for United, players that had, that had had good careers elsewhere. Neil Bailey then come into the picture a little bit more now, and I know obviously since then he moved into the FA, at the FA, and they were not just wonderful coaches; they were wonderful human beings and, and, and great mentors for us all. Whether it was for a career in football or whether it was to set you up for life, and people forget that. People forget that you know yes. You're at the School of Excellence and you're there till you're 16, you'll sign schoolboy forms at 14, then you go to 16, you might sign an apprenticeship, then you get to 18. And the percentage of players then that I let go at 18 is, is incredible. Yeah. You know, because then obviously it starts getting a little bit more difficult. But what all those people I just mentioned to you, yes, they were wonderful and, and outstanding coaches, but they set you up on your way to, to becoming a man. Yeah. in terms of how to carry yourself. So Alex Ferguson, who I will be forever indebted to, was also that type of figure as well. Yes, they were, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, one of the greatest ever managers the world's ever seen, but they were people that were shaping you as a human being as well. And I think that's something that can't be forgotten because for every 11-year-old that starts off at a football club and goes on to have a professional career, there's probably a 1,000 that don't. So it's it's the, it's the frame of mind, it's the state that you're in when you then leave, when you leave the football club, whatever club that may be. And, you know, have you been given enough guidance in terms of, you know, you as an individual to, to take that next step, whatever it may be, into what career? Not just about being a footballer. And I think that's so important. Talk about Alex Ferguson. And I think one thing people look at is obviously the things that he's won. But when you talk about character, I think a lot of people always remember the kind of the hairdryer's the first thing that comes to mind. There's a lot of, I mean, he's, mm. he's a Glaswegian. Of course, he's fiery. It's kind of in his blood. But um, one thing probably people don't touch on enough of of is, is him as a man. I mean, at what point do you, at Manchester United, do you, you meet Sir Alex Ferguson? Do you get that introduction? At what point do you start getting almost like not coached by him, but maybe mentored by him and moulded by him. And as you said to yourself, sort of almost getting ready for you to, to play professional football and mould you as a person. He, you know, he, he would come down every now and then to, to the training sessions that we had when we were very young, like I say, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, especially when we were off school and, you know, we might have games against other teams, you know, we would, he, he would come down to those games. But the biggest thing is with him is that, like I say, I played six or seven times for United. I was never a regular, was never in contention to be a regular or anything like that. But he still took the time. So, you know, he, he would know your parents' names, just things like that, silly little things like that. And then, obviously, when I had the trouble that I had in Belgium, he flew over with me. He'd known me since I was 11. I think I was then, by that stage, probably 20 years of age. So he'd known me for nine years. He knew me as an individual. He'd seen me, he'd seen me grow as he, as he had seen other people grow. And he, he he knew you as a person and he knew what, you know, what he thought you were capable of and things that, no, 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 he, he wouldn't do anything like that. And he backed our corner. You know, it was myself and Ronnie Warwick at the time. And they just won the treble. Yeah. You know, so he had more important things to be doing, like trying trying to, <laughs> trying to emulate or make a team <laughs> better than, than, a, than a just won the unprecedented treble. And he took his time to fly over to Belgium with us. He stood in our corner. 
Um, he made sure that my parents were comfortable with everything and that, that, that we were going to get all the backing that we needed because he trusted in me and he believed everything that I said. And he gave us security at the age of 19, he, uh, 20, sorry, he took me into his office and, like I say, not knowing whether I was actually ever going to be able to play football again and give me a four-year contract. Yeah. And, you know, that that really meant a lot because not the fact of like him saying, oh, well, you know, I didn't think for a minute, oh, he's giving me a four-year contract means I'm going to be a first-team player here. It meant that you were valued and you felt appreciated and understood whilst a lot of people were trying to say that you'd done things that you actually hadn't. Um, and about, what would it have been, maybe about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I can't remember when it was now, just before he, he, um, he, he became ill, I was on my way back from, from Sky. Mm -hmm. I was getting on the train at Houston. I was going to one of the back carriages just out of the way. And I walked past him. And, like, he had these four chairs to himself. And I was like, oh, you know, how, how are you, Gaffer, and things like that, you know, looking well this time. I've had a chat for a couple of minutes. He asked me how my parents were. And they said, you know, have, have a good day. You know, it's really good to see you. And then I walked about three steps and he went, what are you doing? And what do you mean? He went, come and sit down with me. Yeah. And I had two hours with him, just me and him. And it was just unbelievable because it was, it was a, it was a former, you know, well, it was, it, it was one of the best ever managers, like I say, that, that the world has ever seen, yeah. you know, that had now retired talking to this lad who, who had retired from playing football that, you know, had not, not reached any heights of, of his significance, but we just spoke and it, it wasn't a football chat. It was just a life chat. And I never forget the one thing he said to me as I left, which he always used to say to all of us as, as youngsters, he was like, always be smart, always be smart, always have your shirt and tie and this and what have you. And he was just brilliant. He, he, he recollected things. He recollected an injury that I had when I was at United. I broke my femur, which to this day is still bizarre, but he, he remembered that. He remembered my parents. And this was, you know, 19, 19 20 years later yeah. on. He, he, he was just that type of, individual and I remember when we were at Southampton we played them last game of the season I think we needed a draw or a win to stay up and they beat us and we ended up getting relegated on the last day of the season and I was devastated I was gutted and I walked into the tunnel and as I'm just about to go into our dressing room I just got my head down he's waiting outside our dressing room for me and the great Sir Alex Ferguson apologised to me <laughs> and just said I'm really sorry and I just thought to myself wow you know, this is this is a manager that, you know, I'd left the club, what, probably six years, seven years previous, and he still waited outside our away dressing room for me to just say he was sorry. And, and you, I just thought that was, you know, don't get me wrong, it was a real low part of my career, which yeah. when you get relegated, it's, it's horrific. But for him to do that, you know, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to come and back us up in Belgium. He didn't have to have to give securities in terms of a of a contract to two snotty faced kids. He didn't have to do any of that. You know, he, he didn't have to take the time to sit down for two hours later on in life when we're on a train on the way back from Houston. And he just wanted to, and we just talked about everything. And it was like it was brilliant because it wasn't a football manager and a football player anymore. It was just still me, starry eyed, looking at him. And just talking, just talking in general about life. And it was just, it was brilliant. And like I say, I've never, will I have a bad word to say about him because he, 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 well, he saved my career before it even begun. And that's something that myself and my family will, will always be so, so grateful for. And I could be wrong, but I think, um, you might be, you've referred sort of early to your stint in Belgium. And I think obviously being a Sunderland fan, it maybe wasn't 
it's obvious to me at the time, but obviously I know Antwerp has been seen as a club that Manchester United have trusted for years since yeah. since I've been born, basically. Um, and most people have gone over there and done really, really well. But I think when you when you first went over, although you left and were really popular when you came uh, when you returned from Belgium, it wasn't a easy transition at first, was it? You had a bit of difficulty, shall we say, when you huge. first went there. It was a huge learning curve for me. You know, I think that that was probably the biggest instant. Well, that was the time in my career when I went out there as a as a kid and probably come back a man. Um, and and it, it 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 was looking back, it was a brilliant situation to go through because you know it, it was so there was so much character building within such a short space of time. So I went there and I was the first player that had gone from United. Now you got to remember this 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 was this was a team that in the glory years. So. Well, when I went there, when did I go there? So I think I went there in 99. Yeah. And you may have to correct me if I'm wrong, but even 92 or 94, I believe they were in the Cup Winners' Cup final, I think, at Wembley. Yeah, I believe so. It was around that time. Yeah. 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 And so they, they were a huge football club that had fallen on hard times, one of the biggest clubs in, in Belgium. And, you know, alongside the likes of uh, Bruges and, and Anderlecht and Liège, you know, and, and, and Antwerp were right up there, but they'd fallen on bad times. They'd been relegated. So I'd gone there and we were in the the like the second tier so as i've gone there you know the ground very old school stadium a wonderful stadium but very old school at the time and it was it was seen as a big thing because obviously they'd got this connection with with manchester united i was the first player going over there so all of a sudden it was like well things aren't going great at the moment but we've got this player coming from man united so everything's going to be all right yeah but people forgot that i'd had one substitute appearance in the first team i think i was 19 years of age and I was a left back, you know, so I've gone there. First game is on national television. We played, um, who did we play? I think we played a team called Molenbeek, which is like, you know, was big rivals for Antwerp yeah. at the time. I gave away a penalty. We got beat 1-0. Uh, second game, I think we got beat 1-0 at home. And then the third game, we played a team at the bottom of the league and we got beat 5-0 away from home. So then we're on the bus on the way home and... Me being naive, like I say, I'm 19 years of age, all the players are on the bus, and there's a huge gathering of Antwerp fans. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, we've just been beaten 5 0. And they've come to, like, you know, keep our spirits up and things like that. So <laughs> everyone's getting off the bus, everything's all right. I get off the bus and just mayhem pursues. Everyone's like, you, you English so and so, get back to your own country. We don't want you here. You're no good for us this time, whatever. And I was like, whoa, what have I just walked into here? Yeah. And then the manager at the time was a fellow called Reggie Van Aken. He was brilliant. He was an outstanding manager. Um, his wife was on the bus as well. She came out and she went ballistic. And she went, you've got to understand, this is a 19-year-old lad and you're putting all your grievances on him. You're giving him all the sticks. So we've got senior players here and you're coming for this 19-year-old that's just played three games. And he just, she just shoot, got, him, got him out of the way and what have you. And then the manager took me in his office at the ground and said... You know, I'm really sorry about that. And I, my initial reaction was, I want to go home. So I've not, I've not come here for this. You know, I've come here, yes, to, to do the best that I can. But I want to go home. And I'm so happy I didn't. Because he then said to me, he said, listen, please, you, me and my wife will go out tomorrow for some food. I'll never forget, I, I had mussels. Uh, I went to a seafood restaurant. And he just sat me down and said, do me one favour. He said, we'll make a deal. He said, give me the next three games. And... If things don't turn, he said, I will pay for your flight home. I'll cover all the costs and 
we will we will cover it over so it doesn't look bad on you. I was like, no, I said, I'm not bothered about that. I said, I, I want to go home. He said, please, just trust me. And at the end, at the end of the dinner, we shook hands and I said, right, I'm going to give you three games. And then we won the next 12. And it was just, it, it, it was incredible because what happened was we then had, I think about four or five games in, like I say, we won the next 12. The fifth yeah. game in, we played uh, away. And it was bizarre because the dressing rooms had um, like glass ceilings. It, it was really weird. So we're in there, game change. Everyone's obviously happy because the, the change in atmosphere, the change in results and everything, it just made everybody feel as though we were on this good journey. And um, so I'm just sat down. I'm just like, wow, this has just changed so quickly for the positive. And all of a sudden, all you could hear was this like knocking. And I'm looking around, like, and I'm, I'm oblivious that this, that this the, the dressing room has actually got a glass ceiling at the moment. I'm yeah. just hearing this banging. Someone's banging on the windows. So I'm looking around. There's a couple of windows, but there's nobody at the windows. And then carries on banging. And then I think, so, like, that's coming from above my head. So I've looked up, and there's this fella, and I'm not kidding you, he's got no top on. He's got a pair of shorts on, and he's just covered in tattoos. And he's pointing at me. <laughs> And I'm like, I know this fella from somewhere. He's pointing at me, but he's just like really angry pointing at me. And I was like, that's the one that went for me. <laughs> at, at, at the game when we'd just been beaten 5-0. And he's pointing at all his tattoos, then he's pointing at me. And I'm like, oh my God. So I was like, right, so I've got changed. I thought, so please, you can't come for me again now. Things are going all right. I walked outside <laughs> and he's giving me the biggest bear hug <laughs> you could imagine. <laughs> and he is visibly crying his eyes out. Crying his eyes out. And he just was like, Danny, I am so, so sorry. You have to understand I'm an emotional person. This club is my life. Showed me all the tattoos and I was wrong to do what I did. And from there, it just snowballed in the positive way. And then before you knew it, you know, after every game, fans were coming up to you, come on, let's go out for a drink and, and, and what have you. And it was just, it was unbelievable. And that that was such a really, really good um a good time for me, for me and understanding that, you know, however life, how, however bad you think things can be within reason, I'm not talking about, you know, what's going on in the world now. I'm talking about within the personal side of things, yeah. not illnesses or anything like that. Of course. How quickly things can just feel like there's no way out of this and it isn't going to get any better. So I've just got to, got to go and change mentality. Sometimes you don't know how close you are to things actually being right and being good and being successful. And that was a really, really good early lesson for me from the age of 19. And, you know, I, I just, I loved my time there. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. I wouldn't change the early episodes where everything was going wrong. And I thought that everything was my fault. I wouldn't change anything because it was a wonderful experience. And then you come back, obviously, to Manchester United. But by, I think, 2000, you signed for, for Derby County. Yeah. And you go from... You go, you go from leaving a really big club and a manager there where, I mean, I think you'd made about four appearances or so. And then, I mean, we're yeah. talking a, a bloody good Manchester United side at that point. Mm. I mean, incredible. any kind of appearances around that, I mean, it shows you the level that you could play at because you had your Beckham's, your schools, your defence, Dennis Irwin, obviously, I think was the, the main left back at that point. Yeah. But you go to Derby um, and I, I think it was obviously Jim Smith. Um, that would have been in charge at the time. So you go from a character like Alex Ferguson, um, who I think is a character in every way of the world, but uh, Jim Smith, how how does Jim Smith convince oh, you that leaving Man United is the right him. thing? Loved him. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, talking about things like this again, but yeah. I was at his funeral 
um, mm-hmm. a month or so again. He was just, he was just a legend in every sense of the word. He was. It was it was his character, so he he, he could oof, he, he could lose it with you, yeah, <laughs> like 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 no other. He he was, but he, he had this knack. So after a game, you went in, and like you just knew he was just going to take off, and he was just going to go, and he could rip you to pieces for ten minutes. And then two minutes later, he's giving you the biggest kiss and hug that you can imagine. <laughs> and the world was fine again. Yeah. And that's not something that you can teach an individual. No. That's something that you either have or you, or you don't have. And he was just this incredible, effervescent character that just, I don't know, we, you, to know him was, was to love him in every sense of the word. You know, he would... His door, you know, when people say, oh, my, my door's always open. His door was always open because the canteen was next to his office and his office door was never shut unless there was a player in there talking to him. Yeah. And he knew, he knew certain times when players needed a conversation, when players need, he needed, when, he knew when players needed a chat before the players knew that. And the way he just went about things, you know, and, and obviously he got replaced uh, in my second season there, but what, what he did, he actually... So I went there as a left-back, and I'll be the first to admit, my first five months there were an absolute disaster. You know, I'd gone from I'd gone from a team where, yes, you were a left-back or a, or, or a club, you know, whatever level that was, whether it was reserves, whether it was, if you played in the first team, whether it be the A team, the B team, you'd gone from a club where I was a left-back, you more often than not were a left-winger, so you didn't have to do that much defending. Going to a club where it's like, no, every single game you're going to be doing 90% of the time you're going to be doing defending. Yeah. And it hit me for six early on. And it probably wasn't until I started to find my find my feet round about Christmas time, January time, and things then started to change. I was then looked at, right, you know, I want to give you a go in the centre-back position. I want to give you a go in, in, in the middle of a back three. And I had a really good end to the season. And then that, that carried on the next season for me on a personal perspective. Yes, you know, it was awful. We got relegated at the end of that season. Um, we had a few different managers. Uh, we had Jim Smith, we had Colin Todd, we had John Gregory. Um, but for me personally, I had one of the one of the best seasons from a personal perspective. You know, I've got all the player of the years. And I think, don't get me wrong, I swapped them all for, 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 for staying up. But I've got so much to be thankful for for Jim Smith because... One of the things now I think is is very difficult and it's something that I saw towards the end of my career is that when a manager has a go at you, it's not because he doesn't like you. It's because he thinks you can do better. Whereas I think now managers have to be so careful of what they say because players take it personal. Yeah. Players think if a manager's having a go at you, if one of your teammates is having a go at you, it's because they don't like you when that couldn't be further from the truth. I go back to when I was at United and we played Leicester after I'd made my, my debut on the Monday, we were training at Littleton Road. So we used to get changed at the cliff. And Jim Ryan, who was my reserve team manager, he said to me, he said, uh, come on, jump in the car with me. So I've got in the car, we're driving around. And he said, uh, what do you think about your debut? I went, Phew. So it's a dream come true for me. I said, it's going to be very difficult for anything in my career to top that. You know, it's a team supported all my life and what have you. And, you know, it was just amazing to come out of Old Trafford. Um, and he said, have you got anything you want to ask me? I went, yeah, I have. I said, for the last two years working under a year and a half, whatever it was, all you've done is blame me for everything. 
Like even even if there's been something up the other other end of the pitch, the right, our right winger's got the ball. He crosses in. He goes behind for a goal kick. Somehow you've managed to feed it back to me that I was somewhat involved in the right winger not getting the cross right. <laughs> and he went, you know what, Danny? He said, I'm so glad you've asked me this. He said because a lot of people don't ask this question until they get into their late twenties, early thirties. And I went, well, what's the answer? He went. One thing I will tell you, and you carry it with you for the rest of your career, when a manager is having a go at you, it means he likes you. When he stops, it means he doesn't care anymore and he can't do anything more for you. And I just carried that throughout my career then through all different managers. Even, even, as, even as football was evolving and generations were evolving, I carried that with me. And it, it, it's so true because I'd be at clubs and you could see certain managers would look at plays and go, Good player, but I ain't going to get anything, anything else from him. So I'm just not even going to bother. Yeah. I'm actually going to bother, get angry with people that I know can do more for me. And it was it was a really good, you know, early early lesson for me, really, in terms of that. But Jim Smith was very much like that. Some of the things he'd say in the dressing room, but like I say, within five minutes it was forgotten. And that, that was the beauty of Jim Smith. No grudges were held. Game's done. Game's finished, regardless of the score. Right. Say what I'm going to say. Now we're all right and we crack on for next week. And he was he, he, he was absolutely brilliant. Talking about playing under characters, you went obviously from Derby. I think, as you said, in the, the last season, you had like those three managers, which I'll be honest, I'm, I'm probably used to with Sunderland. That's not that many yeah. if you're a Sunderland fan. Um, but mm. you, you stayed in the Premier League as it was, um, although you did get relegated with Derby. You came straight back and signed for Southampton, I believe, at that yeah. point. And when we're talking about characters, it was Gordon Strachan that signed you. Um how funny actually is Gordon Strachan and what oh. is actually like in the dressing room? <laughs> you don't get into a debate with him because <laughs> there's only one winner. Yeah. And he will win not he doesn't he didn't even need to open his mouth. <laughs> and, and and anybody that's listening to this and you'll know yourself, yeah. you just picture his face. Yeah. He can destroy you with, with a facial. If you say something that's like what? He doesn't even have to respond. You just get his face and he's like, oh, I'm not getting anywhere there. So very rarely, very rarely would you like lose. Not very rarely would you get into too much debate because you know you're onto a loser. But me being me, sometimes I didn't, I, I didn't used to engage my brain before I spoke. Yeah. So we had one game at Birmingham and um, oh, I'll never forget it. And it's something that I've said a few times before. We had this game at Birmingham. And one thing which is like was a real pet hate of his, and it will be of most managers as well, is that hated conceding from set pieces, whether it be corners, whether it be free kicks, whatever. Yeah. So about a minute before half time, we concede from a corner. So he comes in and he's like getting angry and he's like, who the FNL? Who the FNL? We're supposed to be marking a man that's put the ball into the box and everyone's gone quiet and for no reason whatsoever I've opened my mouth and I've gone gaffer and he's gone, <laughs> he's giving me the look and I'm thinking to myself, the minute he's giving me the look I'm like, no, just shut up, just don't say anything <laughs> because he's giving me this look and I'm thinking, no matter what I say now, I'm just going to look an idiot, complete and utter idiot. So he goes, what is it Danny? And I went, you know what? I said, before every game we've all got a man to mark, right? And if we don't mark our men, then individually we have to take responsibility. So if my man scores, you know what? It's my fault and I'm expecting to, to get stick for it. So he said, yeah, yeah, where are you going with this? I said, well, we've got to take responsibility. So I said, just look behind you. I said, there's a board there. Look who scored the goal. And whoever scored the goal, the man who's supposed to be marking him, then that's wrong. You can't let your marker score. And everything's gone silent. 
And I'm thinking, oh, God, what's he going to come back with? <laughs> so we went up to this board, which had the names of all our players that were marking their plays. He picked the board up and he walked towards the exit, like to go on the pitch. And he said, Danny, he said, that's a great idea. He said, what I'm going to do, he said, next time we have a corner, he starts walking with his tactics board. He goes, next time we have a corner, I'm just going to tell the referee just to wait a minute. I'll run back in. Now, it's a long walk from the, from the pitch to the dressing rooms. At some he said, what I'll do, he said, I'll, I'll come out my technical area. I'll jog into our dressing room. I'll go and get the board, which has got all the markers on it. I'll bring it out onto the pitch and I'll point to all the players again about who's supposed to be marking who. And then what I'll do, I'll tell the referee to wait a minute while I run and bring the board back in and they'll go, I'll get back into my technical area and I'll tell the referee to crack on with the game. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, where's this going? Then he brings a tactics board back and he picks up this cup of coffee. And I'm thinking, I know what's coming on now. <clears throat> and he's gone to throw it at me and he's missed me and hit the goalkeeping coach. And I was just like, <laughs> Don't ever say anything again. Don't say anything again. He's just giving me a look and I was like, oh, what are you thinking? It's um, just that but that, but that, was, that was the gaffer as well. And he, he was he was brilliant. He was one of the best man managers I ever worked with. He was he was just unbelievable. When you look at the team finished eighth, we got to an FA Cup final, got into Europe. And he was just he just got the best out of players. He got he got me fitter than I'd ever been. Um, and it was a collective, and that's what that team was all about. And his man management skills, once again, like Jim Smith, he knew when players just needed that little bit of an arm around the shoulder or needed a boot up the backside. And he was he was brilliant. And it's no surprise that when he left, that's when things started going backwards. Yeah, because, because I think he, few... he was he was an outstanding manager. Because you, you were at obviously Southampton, I think three or three or four seasons. Um, yeah, I came in January two thousand and three, so it was probably about three and a half years. Maybe I was there. Because you play, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I could be completely wrong with my title. It was either Wigley or Sturrock, or, or both took over one after the other. Exactly. Yeah. Same season. We had, we had three. We had three managers here. So Paul Sturrock comes in after after Gordon and obviously it's a little bit of a left field approach because nobody knows anything about him yeah. you know obviously you know you all know he was, a, he was a magnificent player in Scotland yeah um, so he came in and to be fair I think we finished the season 12th uh, we finished the season 12th I missed the last maybe four five games something like that because we were playing Aston Villa at home I'm trying to think I've got a feeling it was I can't remember what the score was. And um, my stomach really started hurting. And I blame my mate, who, um, you know, one of my best mates, John McEwen, who now works at Everton. Yeah. I'd been at his on the Thursday or the Friday, and he'd cooked this fish, but it wasn't properly cooked. <laughs> but I felt really bad. So everybody left, left their food. And I was like, oh, I can't leave the food. So I ate everybody else's fish. Because I felt really good. It was like, he's just gone on so much effort. So then the Saturday comes on, and like before the game, like, oh, my stomach feels really weird, feels dead uncomfortable. Then halfway through the game, like, you know, you get cramping your legs, you get it, you know, your thighs, your calves, your hamstrings, and things like that. And then start getting cramp in my stomach, and I'm like, oh, this ain't, this ain't good. So I've done the full 90 minutes, then I get home, but I'm in agony. And like I said, I've just played the full game, I get home, and then the next morning, I'm like, oh, no, there's someone not right here. So I rang my mate, and I've gone, I need to go to the doctor or the hospital. He went, well, what do you want me to do? Well, I went, I don't know. I said, I'm going to drive now. I said, but if I need you, you know, were you there? She was like, yeah, yeah. So 
the doctor's was probably only about ten minutes from where from where I was living, and bloody hell, a half hour journey. I, I hadn't even got halfway there because I couldn't even look over the steering wheel. I was in that much pain. Yeah. So I ran my mate and said, "You're gonna have to come and get me." I was like in tears. I was in agony. So he comes, takes me to a doctor's, and I got rushed in. I had my appendix out half an hour later. So what had happened was my my appendix were bubbling up or whatever during this game, and then they burst the next morning. Oh. Um, so I missed, obviously, the remainder of the season. Then we yeah. had the whole pre-season. But then there started to be a few bits start to go out in the newspaper about, like, about Paul Sturrock. And, you know, the, one of them was, like, in one of the back of the newspapers that we'd nicknamed him Wurzel Gummidge. <laughs> and we were like... Where's this coming from? Because we didn't. We had nothing yeah. to do with that. You know, some some of us, some of the lads may not have agreed of, you know, how we wanted to do things. Of course. But there was nothing like that. Then we played the first game. I think we played Villa. We got beat. We then played Blackburn. I think we won. But then I've got a feeling he got sacked after that on the Sunday. And he come in and he's having a meeting. He's like a little bit shaky. And we're like, what's going on anyway? When I've been, you know, I've been relieved of my duties. And we were like, two games into the season. But, like, we were the ones then that were sort of, like, it, it was on us. Yeah. Type thing, because these things have been put in the paper. There was nothing to do with the players. Nothing to do with the players whatsoever. You know, some of the headlines that were coming out. So that, that was really tough, and we, and we fell for him. And then Steve Wigley came in, who was, like I say, one of one of the best coaches that, that, I, that I've worked with, but not a manager. Not a manager. You know, I thought he was a great coach, but he took that step up from, from being a coach where you can be people's mates and had done unbelievable work with the young players there. Yeah. And then became a manager. It's very different then to then take take a step away. And if anything, it wasn't hard enough with us. I remember one game he came in and he absolutely lambasted us and he walks out and everyone's like, Wow, you know, maybe this is gonna be gonna be where he is changing his mantra type thing the way he's been with us. Came in five minutes later and apologized and he's just like, No, we can't do that and then Obviously, Harry then came in. Harry Redknapp then came in from Portsmouth, and that was just bizarre because he left Portsmouth to come to us. Still bizarre these days. And then I think he left us that. to go back to Portsmouth. Part of the great escape. Yeah. Um, and you know, but the damage was to a certain extent done. Then we lost, we lost James Beatty in January. Um, you know, he was he was a big player for us. Peter Crouch came into his own. Then he then went to Liverpool in the summer. Yeah. Um, but. It was just, it was just, you know, everything was just going from bad to worse there. And like anything, if you if you get a lack of consistencies in manager, then you get a, you get a lack of consistent voice, and you get a lack of consistency in players, and it be, it can become a huge problem. That's exactly what happened. I suppose then after that, to be honest with you, I was sort of looking through your career and things like that, and I think most people listening to the podcast probably associate Stoke City with you. Yeah. To be to be honest, obviously you're really part of that sort of famous Tony Pulis side that seemed to surprise yeah. everyone. But I mean, first and foremost, uh, you were only there for one season at first, but it was a, a really tremendous season. I think you scored about uh, almost double figures that season and became yeah. like a real fan favourite, I think, when Stoke won the championship at that point. So you have like a topsy-turvy sort of time, shall we say, with like three managers of both Derby and Southampton, two mm. relegations, you go to Stoke and you find this sort of your fan favourite, you've done really well, fantastic season that you've had. Um, you must think, you know, this is where I want to be, this is where I want to stay. But then something come in for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what, why, what, what was the thought behind leaving and, and how did Sunderland, the move to Sunderland even come about? So, 
obviously, like you say, you know, I had a, had a really good season at Stoke. I'd it was a little, it was a little bit of um, when I went from Southampton to Stoke, it was a it was a leap of faith to a certain extent. People told me I was crazy. People said, "What are you doing?" I'd fallen out with with the people at Southampton. I was basically yeah. training on my own. I had a year left on my contract. There was promises in my contract that hadn't been fulfilled, and things were being put out in the local newspaper that they'd offered me a contract this time, what have you. And I got in touch with the club and I just said, listen, I said, you either change what you're putting in the newspaper or I'm going to give the true story. Yeah. So you're like, well, no, no, that's not going to happen. So well, I'm sorry then, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the papers because this is all very one-sided. And then Rupert Lowe was like, no, you can't do that. I said, well, yes, I can. I have a right to reply. And, you know, you're making me out to look like the bad guy here and it's it, it's wrong. I'm not, I'm not having that. That's not the type of person I like to feel like I am. So, you know, that happened and I ended up training on my own. And then Tony Pulis said, you know, want you to come here, want you to come to the club um, and want to try and change things around. And and he did that. And that year was, I loved that year. It was a brilliant year. And then in the summer, I was away with my, with my family and it had become not, maybe not quite common knowledge, but, you know, my agent had told me that, the Sunderland were interested. Um, so I'm a, I'm sat down, having a couple of drinks with mum and dad, and there was, maybe may been a son, it, 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 I think it was a Stoke support that was sat behind. I'm talking to my dad, and obviously he's here, he's listening to this conversation. So the next thing, I then get home, and Tony Scholes, who's the chief executive at yeah. Stoke, he's doing an hour on Radio Stoke, basically, you know, people asking questions and what have you. And it got around that this fella had been sat behind me and my dad, and I was saying that, you know, Sunderland, you know, shown an interest in Sunderland had, had, had come in for me. And obviously it wasn't public knowledge at the time. Now, this question got asked to Tony Scholes, and he could have knocked it on the head straight away. He could have said, yeah, well, you know what, Dan is an integral part of, of being at the club, and, you know, we want to get promotion next year, which, you know, brilliantly they did anyway. Um, but he didn't. He said at the time, said, you know, obviously, yeah, he, he admitted that Sunderland had come in. Uh, and then 10 minutes later, he rang me up and he said, come on, let's let's go meet up for a coffee. So he's like, what are your thoughts on it? And I said, well, I've loved my time here. So, but, you know, to go and play back in the Premier League um, for a club the size of Sunderland stature and Roy Keane being manager, it would be very difficult for me to turn down. And he said, yeah, I know that. I know that if the money's right, then, you know, you'll be able to go. So I was like, fine, and left it at that. But Tony Pulis was adamant I wasn't going anywhere. So it was a little bit of battle, as, as there is with managers and, and money people and what have you. Of course. And and then he was going backwards and forwards, the, the the fee and what have you. And then I got a phone call from my agent and he said to me, he said, Danny, he said, the deal's done. He said, but Stoke are refusing to look bad on this. Well, what, what do I need to do? He said, you need to hand in a transfer request. And I was like, you know what? I understand it completely because a football club is going to be there forever. You know, as a player, you're there for, you can become a legend at a football club and yeah. you can be there 12 years, whatever it is, but a football club is there forever. So the understanding is, is that we'd rather a player who's only been here a year looks bad than the club. And I got that. I understood that fully, not a problem whatsoever. So the next morning, I got two pieces of paper and wrote out a transfer request and I had to give one to the chairman and I had to give one to Tony Pulis. And then later that day, I was traveling down to Sunderland and, you know, met up with, met up with Roy and, you know, told me, his feelings on the club and what he thought I could bring him and, and what have you. And, and then obviously, you know, like you said, at the next year at, at, at Sunderland and had, 
had a lot of ups, had a lot of downs, and you know it, it is one of those situations where I look at and think, stuff I should have done better." And as I've probably said to you before, it's nobody else's fault other than mine. You know, you take the good with the bad, and I should have done a lot better than what I did. I think maybe I'm talking from a very biased viewpoint with Roy Keane because I feel like sometimes Roy Keane is seen and he's seen as a character, he's seen as a great captain, a great player, but not many people speak about him as a great manager because mm. of the period he had at maybe Ipswich and the fact he hasn't really done much since. But from a Sunderland fan's perspective, one of the greatest characters and managers that has been in, in my lifetime. Everyone that I've spoken to have done yeah. nothing but speak highly of him. Like, how much did you see Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane? Or was he, was he quite different? No, I think there was a lot. And I think it would be... It would be difficult for someone that spent so much time with with a manager like Sir Alex Ferguson for certain things not to rub off, and and there are probably things that you can see from a lot of managers that worked under Sir Alex Ferguson. And it's no surprise that a lot of a lot of players that played under Sir Alex Ferguson went into management. Um, but the first thing I say about Roy Keane is that he picked up Sunderland when they were bottom of the league. Yeah. You know, I remember now, was it the first five games, lost all five or something like that? I went to every single one of them, South End away, seven hours, eight hours on a coach, then, yeah. then Bury. Yeah, I've, I've still got um, PTSD from that, yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, got automatic promotion. Now, you know, you, you, you can say, you know, well, he's a shout, he's a rant and a raver. I don't care how much you shout, I don't care how much you rant, I don't care how much you rave about things. That will not get a team from bottom of the league to top of the league and promoted. No, not at all. Then you go into the next year in the Premier League. He, you know, you sometimes I feel, and this is all walks of life. It's not just not just in football, but sometimes you have to move on further down the line, as in terms of years, to appreciate and realise what a what a job a manager had done at the club. Because if you look at obviously Roy Keane, got them promoted, stabilised them in the Premier League, and then you look at all the managers you've had since. And sometimes when a manager leaves a few years later, they get that bloody hell. I'll tell you what, he, he did do a decent job for us, yeah. didn't he? He did do a good job for us. And that year in the Premier League, the one year that I was there, look at how many goals we scored later on. Because so that's many. what he drove into the players. He drove into the players. that You know what? Regardless of anything, you can go to the last minute and you can get that last minute winner. And that's how it was. And no game, no game for him as a manager was was not winnable. And that may be the thing at times when you look at it and go, come on, you know, we, we've got to be realistic at, at times because we were going to like some of the biggest clubs, some of the biggest teams in fact, you can beat these. You know, and, and that was him because of what he was as a player. He was arguably one of the best all-round midfielders of his generation. You know, no doubt, no doubt about it. But sometimes what you can have with managers that are so were such phenomenal players. The things that they can do in their sleep, some of us couldn't do. Yeah. You know, he used to join in 11 v 11 with us on a Thursday and he was the best player by distance. <laughs> the best, and, and he'd retired and, and, and he'd retired God knows how long ago, but he was still the best player by distance. Best passing the ball and things like that. And I can imagine that that can be difficult at times because we've seen it over the years, you know, people have said that that was sometimes a case with Glenn Hoddle. Some people have said sometimes that was the, the problem with Brian Robson. Yeah. Because it must be frustrating when something that comes so naturally to you because you were such a wonderful individual, such an, an amazing player, when other players couldn't do that. So that may have been a frustration of his. 
but there was no stone left unturned. And like what he would do, he would sit back in training sessions and he would weigh everybody up. He would weigh up the character, the mentality, even just by the mannerisms on that specific day. And if you'd played the previous week and had an unbelievable game, if you didn't train hard all week, you weren't playing. Yeah. And that was something that I found absolutely brilliant because I remember when I was a young player at United and you didn't speak much. You just listened to the senior players when they were talking, whether yeah. it was when you were in the dressing room, whether it was when you were traveling somewhere. You just kept your mouth shut. You were just listening to them all the time. And one of the things, like even now you hear some of them say, their training was more difficult than the majority of the games of the weekend. You know, and that was unbelievable. Don't get me wrong, the ability that they had in their team, but their work ethic during the week, if you didn't train exactly how you were going to to, tra- uh, to play on a Saturday with that intensity, then you're not going to be playing. And and with, with Roy Keane, he didn't care. He didn't care what reputation a player had at the club because, let's be honest, he had a bigger reputation than anybody at the club. So if it was good for if, if it was good for him, then I tell you what, it was good enough for all of us. And that's something that I that I really liked about it. That you knew on a Monday, go and give yourself a good you might not have played at the weekend, but you go and train high intensity, you give everything you've got all all week, then you know you've got an opportunity to possibly be playing at the weekend. Um and like I say, you know, I you you look back like I say, certain times when we started this chat, you have like a little look back at things, but not yeah. too much. But I should have done better than what I did at Sunderland, and I didn't. And the only person that's responsible for that is me. And that's when I look at it. You know, when I've when I've gone to other clubs and when I've done well at other clubs, I take responsibility for that. So you can't have the good without the bad. No. You know, you can't you can't have a bad time at a club, but it's somebody else's fault. But then have a good time at a club, and it's just purely down to you. So I take ownership of the good and the bad, and I think that's you know I think that's how you should be in life. Talk about sort of how he made players work hard all the time, and if they didn't work hard during the training, they didn't get in the team on the Saturday. Now, one of probably the the biggest frustrations for me as a fan was seeing how good Kenwin Jones was at Sunderland. Yeah. Obviously, and I think I, I think many people might agree with me, he didn't have the career that he should have done. And a lot of people have put that down to how laid back he was, I think would be the words that it was. But when he was at Sunderland, especially before his injury, he was something else. And I remember when Roy Keane said he was worth £40 million, which at that point was a lot. John Terry obviously spoke a lot about Kenman. Um, yeah. Why do you think he was so good at Sunderland under Roy Keane as opposed to maybe elsewhere? Well, I was I was with Kenwin at Stoke at as well. Southampton, Southampton. So you were at Sunderland, and I was with Kenwin at Stoke as well. Yeah. And one of the things that one of the things that I would say is what you just said there. He is very, very, you know, he's a very laid back character. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a it's a really difficult one. But I remember we were at Southampton, and then I went to Stoke, and we joined Sunderland on the same day. So you did, that's right. Something yeah. like six million. Six million it was. It was the, I think Manchester United was both of your debuts and then Redden at home, I think was the following. Right. Day. So we joined on the same day and he came for six million, which six million, I know <laughs> it's not now, but six million then was, was a lot of money. Especially from the Especially championship. From the team. And I'm going in and thinking, bloody hell, can we? Six million quid. <laughs> you know, because I'd been with him, you know, a year a year previously. Yeah. So I'd had a year where he was at Southampton and I, there was a year when I was at Stoke and I was like, that's a lot of money. Tell you what, first training session, come off it and I was like, 
that's six million pound well spent. Yeah, he wasn't the player that I'd left at Southampton. He was a good player at Southampton, but that year, how he had evolved to now become a very good Premier League player, I was like, wow. And that was like from the game at Old Trafford when we got beat 1-0. He caused a lot of problems then against Redden. I think he scored one or two. And he had an absolutely brilliant season. And Kenwin was just, Kenwin is just like so, so relaxed. At times, the worst thing you could do to him on a pitch was kick him because then he'd get angry and then he'd go on another level. Yeah. But Kenwin was just a very, very chilled individual because you have to remember, you know, I'd known him for a long time. He came to Southampton as, you know, a relatively young kid. And we didn't know what, what was going to be happening with him. And we were doing this training session. We were doing shape, and it was like defending corners. And he, he out-jumped Anthony Amy and, and added the ball into the back. And that was like, what? That's an athlete. Absolutely athlete. He jumped a goalkeeper. But that, that was him. And, and like I say, you know, at Sunderland and at Stoke, there was days when he was unplayable. And when he, was in, when he was unplayable, you know you were going to win the game. You know, whether that was his hold-up ability, whether that was just his strength, getting in the box. He was unplayable at times. And like you quite rightly said, John Terry alluded to that, how, how difficult he could be. And then, you know, I had the, I was fortunate enough then that he come, he come to Stoke and, and, you know, played a lot of games with him then as well. Uh, but as in terms of, you know, um, getting the best out of him. Certain managers, certain managers will do certain things like that. But I think with Ken, when he did unbelievably well at Stoke, he did really well at Sunderland, and he did really well at Southampton. So he'll probably look at every club that he's been at, and you'd agree that he's probably been a success for for every club that he's been at. I think it's almost a compliment to his his talent and his potential that seemed that he did do so well for Sunderland like one of my favourite players of all time he did do really well at Stoke as well like you're saying there's a reason Sunderland paid six million for him I think there was at times like you said before he seemed like a world beater seemed like he could have his potential was so high yeah but one thing we have to touch on whilst before we leave Sunderland but there was a certain game that I was at I remember so you did spend on paper you've, you've kind of openly admitted you felt you should have done better but I think on paper and looking back and in my memory it was a successful year at Sunderland but the big pull out was you scored in the derby against Newcastle um, which everyone listening to this who's of red and white persuasion will remember Um, you have played as we touched on the start for some absolutely huge clubs um, some really important goals you've scored as well down the line penalties free kicks you love scoring against Newcastle as well I do remember that Um, (laughs) But where would you put Sunderland Newcastle in the list of big games or big derbies that you've played in? How how big is that to play in? Oh yeah, it's huge. It's huge. You know, I played let me think, so obviously uh Sunderland Newcastle, Sunderland Middlesbrough, uh Derby Forest, Southampton Portsmouth. Um and then right at the end of my career I played Chester Wrexham. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's been there's been some yeah, that that was right up there. You just you 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 felt it. As soon as the game the previous week had finished, you know, you go to shops and people are saying, "Oh, you know, just just win this game this time." I mean, you just felt everything cranking up. Um, there was there was no getting away from it. You know, the the rivalry was was absolutely it was mammoth. It was it was huge, um, and to be part of it, to actually play in the games, is something that you know I hold very dear. Like I say, with along with the other clubs when I played in in derbies along the way as well, and. You know what it means by the time the game comes around. You know how much it means to the supporters. 
and it's just a different atmosphere. It's a completely different atmosphere to any other match day when you're playing, whether it be home, whether it be away in all those games that I mentioned. The build-up is just complete. It's like a cup final feel. Yeah. You know, you're coming in, you get off the bus. You know, there'll usually be usually be a couple of hundred fans waiting for you to walk in and things like that. All of a sudden, there might be a thousand, there might be two thousand, and and it's it's just completely different, completely different than any other game that, that you will play this season. Obviously, unless it's, there's another derby game or you're playing away from home, um, and it's just a surreal atmosphere. And the build up to it, I thought that it was going to be the first time it was going to be dropped. Um, because I think we played Man City on the Monday maybe and got beat, I don't know if it was 1-0 or something, and we did shape on the Thursday and I wasn't in it. So I was obviously a little bit good. Then on the Friday, we had a normal five-a-side. Roy was watching from a distance. I was just really frustrated, so I just decided to go and play up front. And just everything I hit just went into the back of the net. And then Saturday morning, names a team, and I'm playing. I'm like, oh, now where did that come from? Because I think it was like a lunchtime kickoff. Um, and I scored, and then afterwards, you know, Roy was asked about it, and he said, well, we scored a lot of goals yesterday in the five-a-side and I had a feeling they'd score. So there was method behind the things that he did. <laughs> he was right. Um, <laughs> and it was it was just it, bizarre. It, it was bizarre it come about because I think Newcastle may have had a corner themselves and it had gone back to them. And I think it might have been Kenwin and Grant. It was. Grant Ledbetter. Yeah. But closed them down ended up forcing a corner. And I just run from the edge of our 18-yard box, not sprinting or anything, but as I was running... No Newcastle player was bothering to trap me, so I'd run past one, then I'd run, run past another, then I'd run past another. All of a sudden, I'm thinking to myself, this could be perfect timing here if Grant plays the ball in. And I think he played a short corner with Kenwin. Yeah, yeah, he did. And I didn't break my stride at any point, and I may have been the only uh, Sunderland player in there. And it just fell on me. I didn't put the ball into the back of it, but I never broke stride from leaving our 18-yard <laughs> box from defending either a corner or a Newcastle attack. To me, heading the ball into the back of the net and it was just it was just bizarre I could see the ball coming to me and Grant we know what he's like he's got wonderful yeah he's got wonderful technique when he's putting the ball into the box and he just found me and you know and then then that was that and obviously the celebration afterwards and fans coming onto the pitch but unfortunately we weren't able to hold on to the result but yeah it's it's a day you you know you never forget and you look back like I say I'm very very rarely other than when I'm doing things like that you know you, you have the instances where you have a look back at little things that have happened in your career but yeah it was it was definitely um, a, a big point for me the goal but obviously the circumstances and the, and the team you're playing against as well like I said before you you like I've honestly said you felt you could have done better I think you know the year you had at Sunland the year itself the club as a whole was successful I think because yeah. it was there was just a feel-good factor at that point. The amount of last-minute goals we scored, and I think we were talking to, I was talking to Mike Clegg in this very same room at one point, and he was saying how they, him and Roy Keane, focus very much on like explosiveness and making sure you mm-hmm. can still have that explosiveness towards the end. And it was, a, it was a great season. So it comes into the the next season, and I remember, I could be completely wrong, but I'm certain you played where you'd never played before for us at left back against Spurs, and then you went to Stoke about two days later. So. Were you expecting the move to happen or was it something that had been sounded out a few weeks beforehand? No, there was there was something in the st- leading up to the season. I think it was Wolves initially that had put a bid in for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had the feeling there was something still underlying there with Stoke. And um, we went to Tottenham first game of the season. And get this right now. I think it might have been maybe Carlos and 
Who was the other lad? Chimbonda. Yes. So, obviously, you know, two very good players, but we'd got to Tottenham and I think they might have turned up the morning of the game. They turned up late for a walk, only a couple of minutes. So I went for a walk, didn't think anything of it. And then we had the meeting and Roy just goes, you can't be trusted to turn up on time for a walk and I don't care who you are because we were both going to be playing. If you can't be trusted to turn up on time for a meeting with your teammates, then I can't trust you to play today. So neither of you are going to be playing. You're not even on the bench. So Phil Bardsley moved from left back to right back and I came in at left back. And I think we won the game 2-1. I think we won won the game 2-1. But then I think we might have played Forrest in the League Cup on the Tuesday. It was Forrest, and yeah, that's right. Yeah, Chimbonda came back in and don't go, he was a he was a big signing in the summer. Chimbonda came back in and then that was me. I think I was on the bench, didn't get involved, and then Liverpool, I think we played at the weekend, was maybe on the bench again. Um, and then that was on the Sunday and the Monday was obviously the transfer deadline the Monday the Tuesday and I was supposed to be playing against Newcastle for the reserves but then I got a phone call and said listen deal's been done with Stoke you know so you know go and go and have your chat and what have you and then I signed for signed for Stoke on the last day of the transfer window and that obviously then began began the journey with, with Tony Pulis and what is like like you quite rightly said that I think a team that will that will be remembered for a long time because of the characters in it and the way we were about our business. Do you think with Stoke, do you think it would be fair to say that the second period then he was the most successful of your career? Yeah, I think so. I I'd, I'd probably agree with that. I think, you know, a lot of people had a lot of people had written us off, but what Tony Pulis had a very good knack of doing was bringing in players that he that he felt A, were good enough for his Stoke team, B, were good enough to play in the Premier League, but C, probably most importantly, maybe lost the way a little bit. Yeah. And and he, 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 picked, he picked them up and he just created this incredible dressing room where, you know, you'd be training, then you'd get in at, say, half nine, something like that, finish training at 12 o'clock, but everybody would still be there at, say, half two, three o'clock because he just created this incredible dressing room where it was all for one and one for all. And we created this siege mentality. Obviously, Arsene Wenger called us a rugby team and there was all this and what have you. But we fed off that. Yeah. All that did, that just that just fed us to, to make sure that anybody that didn't want us in the league, well, you know, sorry, unlucky, because we're not going anywhere. And the the beauty of of those first few seasons in the Premier League was that and I always think this is really important. I've got no interest in ever being a manager at the moment, but I think it's really important that when a manager goes into a club, you know your audience, you know your crowd, you know what gets them going. So Tony Poole is coming into Stoke, playing all this, you know, if he wants to go there or a manager comes in, you're playing all this fancy football, did it? it may work for a bit. But Stoke, very much like Sunderland, is a working class area. And if they see a group of players going onto the pitch and sweating blood and tears, whatever it may be, and going off the pitch and they've been beaten, they'll accept it. There's not a problem. That's one thing that I found in Sunderland. As long as you've given everything, as long as you've given absolutely everything, you know, when you come off the pitch at the end of the day, people will respect that. And Stoke was very much the same. We knew what we were. We knew that our strengths were going to be our home form. We knew what we were capable of. And we knew that as the games went on, more than likely, we were, we were going to get stronger because we were we were a very fit team, and the fans were just behind us. And you know, we used to we used to walk out on a match day at, at Stoke, and 
you know, I think it was 28,000 and one of the, probably one of the lower capacities in the Premier League. But it was, I think the first season of the Premier League, it was the loudest uh, recorded. And you just, you you went out for the warm-up and everything was all right, but then you go in and then you get changed and obviously the, the tunnel then would, would start to come out, you know, on, on the wheels. And you would physically see the blood drain from players' faces yeah. as if like, what the hell have we just walked into? There was a big feeling and, that Stoke at that point, obviously different times, we're talking about 10 years in difference, but I remember growing up at Sunland, the Quinn and Phillips era, sort of when yeah. Peter Reid was there. And I had a really similar feeling to it. We felt as fans, we could beat absolutely anyone. And it yeah. almost felt like it was no coincidence that you had one of the most talented Arsenal teams that came to Stoke and they could just, they just couldn't beat them. No matter what happened, yeah. Stoke would never, uh, Arsenal would never win, sorry. Um, yeah. But you had results against Man City, results against United. Um, it very much felt very similar from from my experience of being a football fan to the sort of the Sunland side of the 99 sort of 2000 Phillips and Quinn yeah. era. I think the biggest thing is, is as, as a footballer, as a team, know what you are. Don't try to be something that, that you're not. I, I knew my limitations. Yeah. You know, I think I think that's that's something that's really important. And we knew as a team that when your Arsenal's and your top teams came to our place, we knew that if we tried to play them with our own game, the game would be over after 20 minutes. Yeah. So what we had to what we had to be is a little bit different. Have something that that the other teams didn't have. You know, not not allowing them to get into the stride. You know, like even like Tony Pulis, you play the teams that wanted to pass the ball. He won't cut the grass. Yeah. He won't cut the grass. The pitch would be the pitch would be dry. You know, it'd be bobbly. So all of a sudden, these these world class players are getting the ball. The ball's coming to the feet instead of laying it off one touch. You've got to take two touches. That's, that does for us because the second touch might be a tackle from one of our players. Then. Yeah. So it, it's using those little things to your advantage. But the biggest thing for us is that we were a collection of players and. We all had our weaknesses, <laughs> you know. We'd be the first to admit that, but we knew what made us strong. We knew what collectively would make us strong, and it was a it was a wonderful dressing room with some unbelievable characters. That you know, if the crap hit the fan, everybody would be there for each other. Nobody would be left behind, and that was that was what we took onto the pitch with us. The fans fed off this, and it became a very very difficult place for teams to come to. A very difficult place. To the point where I felt, you know, a decent portion of the first few seasons in the Premier League, the games were won before they'd even begun. And we used to go into the dressing room after games and we used to sit and talk amongst ourselves and be like, I'd hate to play against us. Because it was just horrible. You know, you look at it, it wouldn't have been brilliant to watch or pleasing on the eye, but it got the results. And the biggest thing for me, like I say, I'm, I know I'm repeating again, but we knew what we were. We knew, we knew our limitations, we knew our strengths and we knew that our strengths would be better than three other teams to remain in the Premier League and I think in the first season we might have finished 12th and we ended up being comfortable and then, you know, we got to an FA Cup final, we got into the Europa League um, but then it's just spiralled since then which obviously you can, you know, you can associate with yeah, and absolutely. I think things like that happen when you forget where you come from when you forget what made you strong, when you forget what made you this team that, that were difficult to play against. And when you lose those ingredients, when you lose that, that identity, that mentality, then it's very difficult because you get to that point in a Premier League where it's like, right, you hit a ceiling. And no matter what you do, 
people can say, oh, well, you can go out and spend £200 million or whatever. Okay, well, A, you can do go and do that. But what you're saying, you're going to say that the top six or seven teams above you, they're not going to go and spend money and they've got more spending power than you. Yeah. So what you do, you have to be very, very careful. And I think Stoke had got to the ceiling, which was like, right, we want to kick on now. People would snatch your hand off now for a ninth place finish in the Premier League. And that's where that's where you hit the crossroads. And we've, we've seen it. We've seen it with so many teams over the years where you rise and you rise and you rise and you rise. Then you hit that ceiling. Don't get me wrong. You might have a one-off where you finish fifth or sixth, a bizarre season. But that's not going to happen on a consistent basis. So therefore, then you have to remember what you are. You have to remember you are in the Premier League and to win your league within the Premier League because more often than not, each season, there are a lot of untouchables. It may yeah. change for one season or for two seasons at the most, but it's very difficult to actually break that ceiling if you're one of the one of the teams in the in the lower division within the Premier League. There's very few Leicesters, is there? Very, no, very and few. You know what? And it was brilliant. It was absolutely amazing to oh, see yeah. that happen. But it's not going to happen again. It might not happen again in our lifetime. No, I mean it was it was so brilliant because it was so completely out of the blue. Oh, that it was. happened. It was. And they, they won the Premier League on snobbery because everybody was like, no, we'll let Leicester do what they want to do and we'll just be better at them than than, than what they are at what they're doing. And, you know, a lot no of teams got bloody nose, didn't they? <laughs> it was brilliant. Like you say, it's, you know, it, it, it's the one Premier League, you know, I support Man United, but it's the one Premier League that you'll never ever forget because it was just so unexpected. Yeah. With Stoke, I mean, uh, at the time, there was there was a bit of snobbery there as well. I think a lot of people yeah. pointed to to Rory Delap, who really frustrating yeah. enough you signed from Sunderland, and we never <laughs> he never took one throw in for us. Yeah, um, well, I, would, I was with him at Sunderland, Southampton, and uh, sorry, I wasn't with him at Sunderland. I was with him at Southampton, Derby. First, he never did it there. Yeah, so he was, yeah, he was at Derby, Southampton. I'm blaming him for Sunderland. both the relegations. We stuck him at right back, couldn't throw. Yeah. Well, I'm going to blame him for hours as well since we're there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of people did look at that. And the same with the look at Tranmere in like 99-2000 with Dave yeah. Challoner, um, or classed you as long ball. Now, I was just, just as research as, you know, I, I assume a good interviewer should do, just looking through some of the sort of the goals that Stoke was scored. And yeah, there was a few long balls, there was a few big throws. Yeah. The likes of Ricardo Fuller and stuff like that, and the skills that, and, and Liam Lawrence to name someone. Was, yeah. how, was it frustrating at the time? And is it almost frustrating even now that a lot of people labelled that Stoke team as a long ball team? No, not not really, because what what we were, we were, to a certain extent, we could be considered a long ball team up until the final third. Yeah. But if you've got, like you say, if you've got your Liam Lawrences, if you've got your Matthew Everingtons, if you've got your Jermaine Pennants, if you've got your Glenn Whelans, if you've got your Ricardo Fullers, how do they fit into a team that just smashed the ball long? Yeah. They don't. So, from our perspective, Tony Pulis was like, you're a defender, so defend. He, he was simplicity's genius. And, I, and, and I'm not kidding you when I simplify this. If you got the ball as a defender and you had more than one touch, you were playing the ball diagonal. If you were playing the ball first time, it was straight down the line. So our centre forward, whether it be Ricardo Fuller, Dave Kitson, Mamis Adibi, James Beatty, whoever it was knew exactly the ball that was coming. So then what we would say, right, okay, we've done that bit. We've cleared our lines. Now you want to go and express yourself in the final third, go and fill your boots, go and do what you want to do. Whereas now what you'll do, you look at a lot of teams, and this is where I talk about snobbery. For some reason now, I, lo I love all styles of football. I love Same. all styles of football, and, and, and I respect and I appreciate all the different styles. But if you're going to do it, be good enough to do it. You know, the, 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 
the latest craze is we've got to play out from the back. Got to play out from the back. Barcelona do it, Man City do it, you know, Liverpool do it, this time, what have you. That's all well and good if you're able to do it, but don't copy other teams as something you're not as good at because you're going to cause problems for yourselves. And I just feel that like we're going through a huge period of snobbery in football now. It's like, wow, you, you, you can only play one style of football, and that's the beautiful game. If you don't play the beautiful game, well, you know what? You're no good to us. And that is like, from, from what I do now in the media side of things, like I say, I don't care about my career. That, that's done and dusted. But I get frustrated for certain managers and, and certain teams because they do things a certain way. And I'll maybe higher up the team, higher up the, the league, whatever league it may be, than a team that loves to play the so-called beautiful game. But the team that loves to play the so-called beautiful game that might be near a relegation fight or maybe miles away from the team that likes to play the up and at them is getting all the credit. Now, how, how's that possible? But that's, that's the area that we're in at the moment. Yeah. That the only way to, to win football matches is to play the beautiful game. Like Atletico Madrid last week, I covered both their games against Liverpool. Everyone's talking, oh, Simeone's tactics, this, that, what have you, da, 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 da. People forget now that we know your top-class players going forward. We know that you watch it and it's an art It's an art form. Defending is an art form as well. Of course, it's part of the game. Because it, it's not easy to keep a clean sheet. So Atletico Madrid, all right, they didn't keep a clean sheet, but they went to Anfield and they won. But it was, under, it was undermined because, oh, it's these tactics, it's negative tactics. No, it's not. You win the game. The aim of the game is to win. Now, if you, if you win and it's ugly, it's not pleasing on the eye, you're winning. If you lose and it's pleasing on the eye, what are you gaining from that? So I, under, I understand like when Klopp, when he talked about his frustrations, I understand that because it was difficult at times for them. But if Atletico had gone toe-to-toe with Liverpool, there would have only been one winner. And the aim of the game is to, is to win the game. You can't go to one so, field and places like that and be expansive. You'll get torn pieces. 100% and it'd be happy days for Liverpool so it's a mark of respect the way that Atletico played because it was a throwback to Atletico in 2016 when they did it to the likes of Bayern Munich when they did it to the likes of Barcelona you know so as they say there's more than one way to skin a cat but like I say I just think that it, there's just a lot of snobbery in the game now where it's like well if you don't play that way then we're not interested if you're a manager that, that plays like this then you know what you can't go on to the next level as a manager which I think is a, is a joke so I had the fortune of covering Sheffield United over the last three years. Yeah. They got promoted. All of a sudden, it's they're a long ball team. They're just going to go straight back down. And like, I was like, have you actually watched them? Because if you watch them, I'm telling you now, and, <laughs> and, and I put the tweet out there, this team will be comfortable in the Premier League because the way that they play is unbelievable. I call it organised chaos. And, you know, eventually now, they're getting the credit they deserve. But when they were first promoted, oh, it's Sheffield United. It's just going to be big up and at them, second balls, things like that. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, no, it's a little bit different. But they had to overcome that 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 tag that they were given by people who probably never, ever watched them, which I found astounding. When you were at Sheffield United, you were in, it was League One when you were at Sheffield United, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm. When you were with Sheffield United, who was the boss then? Was it Chris Wilder at that point? No, no, no. Chris, Chris came a bit after. after, but I built up a really good relationship with Chris over the years. It was, uh, it was Danny Wilson and then David Weir afterwards. Oh, the um, Rangers man, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. you know, I, I went to Sheffield United. I've been at Ipswich and I went to Sheffield United, and it was a huge club, no doubt about it. There was, there was struggling. You know, they just needed something because it could take off because it, it's a big club. 
and we're seeing it now, you know, with the attendances that they're getting and they love the football there. And looking back, like I say, every now and then you have a look back, my my career was probably over before then. Mm-hmm. You know, because I did when I did Macrucia in 2011, obviously missed the FA Cup final. I gave everything that I could at the age, I think, 32 maybe, to prove that I could come back and 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 get back playing again. That when I got back, I had nothing left. I had nothing left whatsoever, and the game had left me behind. But it it's it's not until afterwards, in hindsight, that you realise that you know you you're trying to give something that just isn't there anymore. And and that was like. That was that was then on the way to me discovering and realizing that the, the time had come then. Excuse me for for me to call it a day. Um, and when that realization hits, at times you know it's it's difficult because you you want to do something, but it's like well, I'm not going to allow you to do it. As in terms of your body and things like that, and you're like, well, hang on, I would have got that last week, or I would have been out all last year, or what have you. So that's a realization, and and there has to be an, uh, an acceptance in it. But what you tend to do, you tend you tend to exhaust every avenue, you know, which is like, well, if I move clubs, you know, that, that might just give me that little bit of a fresh buzz and impetus and things like that. But eventually, there's no getting away from it. When 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 your time's up, when you're done, you have to accept that. And I think that can be the biggest thing at times: the acceptance that either you're not what you were, or you know, your time's coming to an end. Did you feel like that with Altrincham? Because obviously, I think that was the club you wanted to end your career with, and obviously you were at Chester that was, as well. Yeah. See, I went. So when I was at Sheffield United, I had a year left, and the the media side of things was taken off for me, and it was awful. It, it was it was hard at the time because football, for the first time since since I'd been able to kick a ball, football was getting in the way of something else, and I'd never had that. You become so single minded as a footballer, but football was getting in the way of other things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I had an opportunity to go to like a couple of other clubs that were full time and professional within the leagues, but I was like, no, because I'm I'm delaying the inevitable and I'm stopping myself from moving forward. So I went to Chester initially. It was great, you know, Tuesday, Thursdays, played on a Saturday and enjoyed my football then for a little bit of time. But I knew the time was coming to an end. So I went to Altrincham and I signed with them till the end of the season and then another year. And I played the first game and I thought rusty because I've not played for a bit because I've been injured over Christmas. And then the second game, I think we played Gainsborough away and we might have got beat 5-3. And I'm not kidding you. If I said to you I was a pub player, that would be being disrespectful to a pub player. I was pathetic. Um, and after about 50 minutes, it was a 50-50. And I bottled it. I didn't go into it. And that was that split. That was that precise moment where I was like, you have to leave now. You have to get out of this, or it's just going to be—it's not going to be good. So I come off the pitch, and you know, Lee Sinner, you know, obviously he's just had a really um, tough time in his his personal life with yeah. losing his son. Um, I, I I spoke to him, and I spoke to his sister manager. I've only known him for about five days, and they were really good. And then and then Lee said to me, he said, you know, give me a ring tomorrow when you've had time to sleep. And so I rang him and I went, and I told him everything. And then he said to me, when you're finished, aren't you? And I was like, and that hit me really hard because it was a realization that yes, I was finished. And it was probably the confirmation that I needed that it was somebody that didn't know me that well actually could tell me that I was finished. And, um, and I was like, yeah, I'm done. And, you know, I was in maybe a Thursday or a Friday night, invited my mum and dad round. We had a Chinese, had a few beers, you know, spoke about certain instances in, in, in my career. 
Um, and then that was it. Drew the line under it and said, right, okay, you know what I'm doing now. And as, as far as I'm concerned, and this is a bit where people are like, it's a little bit strange, but as far as I'm concerned, I was never a footballer. Yes, it's great for me because I can use it in instances when I'm doing commentary from my experiences, when I'm doing shows and I'm speaking about experience. But as in terms of my playing career, that's finished now, that's done, that's part. It never existed because, yeah. don't get me wrong, people will, other footballers will go, you're an idiot. You're an idiot for saying things like that. But mm-hmm. my perspective has always been, if I'm looking backwards, then how can I possibly look forward? Yeah. So if someone stops me in the street now and want to talk about a goal or a game I played in, it's very difficult for me to get interested in it. Yeah. But whereas if someone stops me in the street or at a game and goes, oh, you know what? I listened to the commentary you did on this game. It was really good how you called that goal. That's what I want to talk about because that's the present, present. That's the now. Yeah. And... N- no way is right and no way is wrong. People would say it's great to look back and this and whatever, and, and that's absolutely fine. This isn't what you... I'm not saying this is what you have to do and this is what you should do, but that's just the way that I look at life in general. It's about looking forward because at times, if you do look back, in my opinion, then if you do look back, you're going to miss things going forward and the, the future is what it's all about in the here and now, not what's gone on in the past. And typically, for my final question, I'm going to ask you to look backwards. So thanks for setting that one up. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it was coming. Yeah, you knew it was going to come. So with this podcast, I want to end the podcast on the same question for everyone every time. So I want you to pick your five-a-side team, but you can only pick players that you've played with or against. Oh, my God. And you can play any position you want. You can play rushy goalkeeper if you really want to. No, well, I, I'm not going to put myself in the team because I've got to pick five great players, haven't I? Well, that is true, Danny. That is true. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't, I don't need to pick myself. Oof. You're welcome to. No, no, no. So the thing is, I can. I, I actually had to do a one to eleven for a show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I could have just chosen all United players. Yeah. Because like the times that, but they, that's I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to go with that. There is one that is in there, and that's Roy Keane. Of course. You know. Yeah. Um, Played with or against them after that. So, yeah. <laughs> There's a few, like. Wow, that is a tough one. Um, I'm going to go with Henri. Yeah. 100%. Roy Keane. I'm probably lying here because now I am going with players, but I'm going against the, the ones that, even though the, you know I was at the club with them, that I played against. So, Paul Scholes. Yeah. He was just an absolute genius. Made made uh, Stokes pitch look like it was Wembley even though it was like a five-a-side pitch. <laughs> um, so that's three, is it? So I've got two three more. Three so far. You've got a goalkeeper and... Probably I've got to choose a goalkeeper, haven't I? Midfielder um, or a defender or midfielder because most people go with one striker up front and a five-a-side, don't they? And if you've got Henri, you're all right. You can cover a few blades of grass. Right, well, I'll tell you what then. I'll go with Henri. Scrap that. I'll go with Henri. I'll go with Scholes. I'll go with Keane. Yeah. That's three. Got to go with a goalkeeper, which will be... <sighs> Got to go with Schmeichel. Yeah. That's who came in my mind, to be honest. And centre-half. Oh, my God. There's tons. Mm. I'm going to go with athleticism in this one because that's what I want in the team. I'm going to go with Real Ferdinand. Yeah. 
I've never enough picked every United players, haven't I? I was half expecting Ryan Shawcross for some reason. I don't know why, but <laughs> I would Ryan, just... Ryan, yeah, Ryan would have gone would have gone in there. That would have been, you know, that could possibly have been like teammates. Yeah, but I just think players that you know I've been fortunate to play against. You know, they just Rolls Royce for you, wasn't we, it? We could have been talking for hours. I could have given you bloody yeah five teams of eleven. You could have it's a decent. Geniuses on the pitch. You could have a decent bench because yeah. when you when you're really looking at players from the United in that era, and even the Stoke team and the Sunderland team, of course, a few decent players in the Sunderland team as well. And Kenwin Jones, not bad in five yeah. side. I'm sure he'll take. Uh, he'll. Uh, Ronaldo. Ronaldo, yeah, of course. See, Ronaldo. Ronaldo. Ronaldo was brilliant because I had I play from when he joined United. I played against him near enough year after year. Being and left you just back, right saw right. the ridiculous progress from the young player that joined United, who would infuriate his teammates because he'd, he'd, he'd do a step over, then another step over, then another step over, then come inside, and then by the time he crossed the ball, the centre forwards had moved because he couldn't make the run again. Yeah. To this, to this winger stroke centre forward, it was just untouchable. And probably one of the greatest players of all time now. Oh god! Yeah, he's not in my five-a-side team. It's a hard choice, though, to be fair. So, so I've got Keen Scholes, Henri, Keen Scholes, goalkeeper, and Ferdinand. Yeah, do Henry. I have, to have a defender? Yeah, you got Ferdinand. Do I have to have a defender? No. Right, well, I'll go all out and then put Ronaldo midfield free of Scholes, Keen, and Ronaldo. If I ever yeah, get Rio on this, I'm telling them that. And then Michael will cover the goal. <laughs> Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Likewise, really, really interesting. Um, always good to catch up, and really nice to cover your entire career rather than just the the sort of red and white spectrum of. of-